0: this week, almost got caught in the remnants of Hurricane Patricia, um, which was the most powerful storm recorded. That doesn't mean it's the most powerful storm, it just happened to be the most powerful one that they have records of. And uh, when it was hitting the, the coast of Mexico, I was in Dallas, Fort Worth, and was getting the deluge there of lots and lots and lots of rain and thunderstorms and stuff like that. And so I ended up getting waylaid in my journey. Uh, had to spend the night there and fortunately it was only one Um, and so I'm sitting there frustrated and just you know steaming actually decided American (laughs) Airlines was the worst airline in the world I've probably decided that a hundred times before but nonetheless there I was and uh, what do I do? Well I got some pizza some comfort food and I sat down at nine o'clock at night flipping through the channels and I came to uh, Bill Maher, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's an a incredibly liberal, uh, very profane uh, person, and um, he happened to have uh, a couple of people on his show, and th- his target is uh, in many ways Christianity, religion of any kind, but he takes special shots at Christians because he thinks we're incredibly dumb. And, uh, and his guests that evening were Richard Dawkins, who I thought, I read a rumor that he had passed away. Well, he evidently has not. He's still alive and, and well and uh, spouting his liberal theology. And then uh, the guy who did redid the Cosmos program after Carl Sagan passed away. So if you remember, Carl Sagan did the show Cosmos, and uh, the great statement from that show is, the Cosmos, all it is, all that has ever been, all that will ever be right, that the cosmos is eternal, and that it is the uncaused cause. And uh, so this new uh, physicist, and I can't remember his last name, his first name's Ben, you've probably seen him, he's a, a very um, easy-speaking uh, physicist, and he's, he's uh, anyway, he's the, the, the current voice for uh, humanism and naturalism in the world. And, of course, he is right in line with that liberal um, idea that there is no God and that those who believe that there is a God are totally foolish. And, uh, and of course, then they speak about politics and all other sorts of things and their foolishness. And I, I, I read this psalm, and I read, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. And I'm thinking, man, I have such a great comfort, and it angered me so much to think that there are those that are spewing this kind of naturalistic philosophy and humanist philosophy and capturing so many that are caught in the world, and that when I read of God's great deliverance and His salvation and what he's done, it encourages me. So I was able to go to bed that night, and And I'm back today, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, We're studying Ephesians, and uh, one of the great uh, Christian uh, theology books in the New Testament. Uh, Who wrote Ephesians? Uh, Paul. When did he write Ephesians? Pop quiz. After his first trip. Well, it was after his first trip. It was actually when he was imprisoned in Rome. So it would have been on his third trip in in the midst of it. Fall of 60. Fall of 60, yeah. Yeah, she's cheating. She's looking at the notes. Um, And he wrote it, um, and it's a very uh, general letter, right? And what's the major theme that we're focusing on in Ephesians? That's right. That there is a revelation of uh, what God is doing and has done for humanity in redemption and saving us. And that that revelation should impact the way that we live. So if I was to look at the theme, and I'll pick one of these two, that um, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called and we find that kind of right at the turning point in ephesians if you look at the first three chapters is understanding who we are in christ then we see that we are to walk uh, in such a manner in that revelation walk as children of light walk in the revelation and then finally that we take a stand in the world you know the Richard Dawkins of the world and the, and the Bill Maher of the world—they're going to have to make a stand someday, and uh, they have no foundation from which to make a stand. Uh, if you put them against even reason, you get apologists like Rabbi Zacharias that he can present such a compelling argument for the for the uh, cogency of Christianity that they can't argue other than to attack the uh, the speaker. So. They don't have a, a good logical basis for their arguments, so they resort to ad hominem type attack. So we understand that our our stance may come uh, in incredibly difficult times. It may come under persecution. It may come, and persecution can take a variety of different forms. It doesn't always mean that somebody's holding a gun on you. It might mean that someone's holding your job hostage or your children hostage in many different ways. And yet we still need to stand firm in the the light of the revelation in which we've we've been given. So I thought this morning, um, we're we're working through Ephesians, and I'm just going to read the first um, 14 verses, and then I'm going to draw a picture on the board, and then we're going to go back to the outline. We're working through trying to understand the the concept of uh, God choosing us, and there's actually some incredibly powerful words that we need to unpack in here understanding God's will, understanding his choice of us, understanding predestination, understanding the whole redemptive process, all of that. So I'm just going to read and then we'll move from there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. You also after listening to the message of the truth the gospel of your salvation having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So a lot of stuff packed in there. What kind of things have we been talking about that pop off the page for you? Anyone? Anyone? Viewers? Um, let's, uh...
1: Maybe think of uh, when Jesus said after he appeared to in the upper room. Mm-hmm.
0: Praise of his glory. This is someone who's all in on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Paul? Absolutely. The people that were uh, mm-hmm. following him in the midst of <clears throat> uh, uh, a naturalistic secular uh, and I um, I don't I Idolatry. having a lot of idols. <laughs> <laughs> <I> Idolatry. <laughs> Idolatry. To, um, who the we, so you're asking the question in verse 12, who is the we? No, not who the we. Why the we? Who the, apostles right? the right, apostles, right? Right, right, right. The so, so the apostles are the first hand witnesses, right? They're right. eyewitnesses of who Christ is, that the revelation <laughs> of the man Jesus as the Son of God. Fully God, fully man, who made by his choice, because he loved us, laid down his life. No one took it from him, but he laid down his life. He came from the Mount of Transfiguration where he had achieved um, that perfection which Adam lost. Right? He was um, unsullied and inso- unsoiled in any way by the world and by sin. He was without sin and able to stand in the presence of the Father as a man. And yet he chose to discuss with the prophet and the priest what he would do to redeem humanity, that he would actually lay that down. And we read about that in Philippians, so let me just give you the the right language so you know it's not mine. So in Philippians Uh, Chapter 2, we read in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right, so that's what they were first-hand witnesses of. <laughs> Paul was a first-hand witness after the fact, in the sense that um, he may or may not have been in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's crucifixion, we don't know. We don't hear that he was an eyewitness of the death and resurrection at that point in time. However, he was definitely an eyewitness of the risen Christ, and that... Jesus knocked him off his high horse or his low horse, depending on how you view his stature. And he had an, uh, a first-hand, eyewitness interaction with the risen Lord, and it totally transformed his life. So that would be the "we" who were first, right? Now everybody subsequent is like you read about, where um, you know it's, we've got Philip in in John chapter fourteen saying, you know, show us and we'll believe. says oh now we believe he says well blessed are you you know now that you believed but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe right that's us so we're all witnesses of the power of christ through the holy spirit in our lives that he has chosen us that's what we're reading about in ephesians he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. With every spiritual blessing does that mean like a, like eternal life, like the quality of eternal life? Yes. So understanding eternal life is not just uh, qualitative, but or quantitative, but qualitative. In other words, it's not just unending days as a series of time, but rather a quality, right? that it's actually life connected to God himself. It is his life in us.
1: Hmm.
0: And, and that's a, it's hard to get our head around that. That's an abstract idea because of the way that we have this corporeal bodily form and we were designed to, to be um, have the image of God and yet ex- be the expression of that in his creation. So there's a communion, a special kind of communion, that exists between God and man. And when God uh, created us, what did he say? Good. This is not just good, very good. This is very good. Right? And that actually leads me to where I want to go next. I'm going to turn this off for a moment. And I'm going to raise the screen, hopefully in a way, so that I can pull it back down. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Oh, Okay. So here's God and here's man. Man is not God. God created man. So um, and we're not evolved and the cosmos is not all that is and ever was and all that ever will be. Rather it created itself because it needed to create itself. <laughs> Pardon. It created itself because it needed to. Right. 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 So what we understand is is that God is right. That's what His name is. He says, "I am." He is the one that is self-existent, has life within Himself, and can give that to whom He chooses. Right. So, when we study theology proper, we understand, we study the Person of God and His various attributes, and we understand that um, God is Spirit. As best we can understand Spirit, um, that, um, and we we understand all of these different properties. Uh, About uh, God's being, right? That He's omniscient and omnipotent and uh, omniscient and omnipresent omnipresent and all of that because God is, (laughs) right? And apart from God, man does not exist. So we are a creature, He is the Creator. But there was this communion, I'm just going to put it here as a slash. Um, that exists between God and man, and God said, "Very, very good." Well, He said, "Very good." I'm with next to That's pretty significant. What happened? We got, we got two big for riches. So here's where
1: we were in the beginning. That very good thing decided that equality with God was a thing to be grasped and reach for it. <laughs>
0: and <laughs> yeah. that there was disobedience God decreed what was he said this is reality oh and by the way um, there is no reality outside of that which I decreed, all there is is death, all there is is separation from me so if you're not um, in communion with me you're separated from me and because of the part you know the the unique way that I created you to be in communion with me that is a particularly bad state to be in in fact it is the worst state to be in to having to been created to be uh, in eternal communion with your creator and then through your own disobedience being separated and no longer in life but separated from life eternally having once, had that conscious connection to your creator they call that hell it's a state of eternal um, punishment punishment in the sense that you're not supposed to be there it's also uh, a place of eternal suffering right because there is no joy in hell and yet we were created for joy right we were created for all of these good things that God is so here is goodness Put an extra o in there. And down here is unrighteousness, unholiness. Um, It's the absolute opposite of good. I'm going to call it depravity. Depravity and gravity. gravity. Depravity and gravity. (laughs) So, what happened when man sinned? We went all the way down underneath that bottom x axis there. (laughs) (laughs) boom baby right so we would call that total depravity right Mm -hmm. that as a result of um, the loss of communion with God and going to that which is um, us just defining what good is don't you know you'll be able to uh, be like God God, declaring what is good right now what what happens is is you go to this place of total depravity that's one view and what happens is uh, depending on how you understand total depravity you're dealing with um, the understanding of uh, your uh, free will
1: Mm
0: -hmm. how much freedom do you have here You had freedom. What freedom did you have? You had the freedom to choose to obey God. Right. So you had the freedom um, to do good. And you had the freedom to do evil. To do that which God declared is not good. Right? You had freedom. You had uh, the freedom to choose the good or the freedom not to choose good. When we went from here to here, how much freedom do we have here? Some would say it's not possible not to sin in this state. Here, it's possible not to sin. It's also possible to sin. But here, it's not possible not to sin. That's one of the arguments about where we find ourselves today because wherever the result of the fall is, it's still the, the effect of that is still happening now. What you experienced this morning when you woke up and the first thought went through your brain um, <laughs> even what you dreamed last night is still the result of what happened on that day
1: right. Romans three, Paul says in in three ten, that is written: None is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one sees God. All turn right, together they
0: become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Yep. So we would argue that we are in a state of total depravity. Some would say, Nah. We we kind of hit a balancing point. Sure enough, we we fell, and we experienced death. But it is still possible to not sin. That you could, by your free will, choose to to do that which God requires in order to be in communion with Him. Then. So if that's
1: on a if that's based on a works um, level, then or that graph looks like it's you know could represent <laughs> separation. So basically, if you could not sin in order to close the separation gap, you would be working your way to God, right? Which we know, <laughs> which we know, or maybe a little down the other way. <laughs> yeah, you <Yeah. but> <laughs> yeah, might have to do Yeah. yeah <laughs> Yeah, but without Jesus as that intermediary for that separation, then we can't do any of that. It doesn't matter what we try to do. We can't, so it's, it's a flat line
0: at the bottom. So that, that, that would be a total loss of our free will. In other words, we can no longer, it is not possible for us not to sin. That doesn't mean that everything that we do is full of sin. But at the end of the day, right, it will be not possible to not sin. Which is why I said that Jesus had actually... He's called the second Adam. Because at the end... It was stated of him... He had not sinned. Even though tempted in every way. So he did what was impossible... For a man. As a result of the fall. He did what was possible or Adam, in that sense he's the second Adam but there's a there's some peculiarities to the human divine interaction that we want to tease out that it required actually the son of God to come and intervene on our behalf
1: Daniel? so if he okay, as, a, as a man or as a man he, he did that so then as God, he, as God he can't die right, so he couldn't he couldn't die if he got us, but he um, I can't remember exactly how I goes. but it was basically like whatever you just said, just cross them the
0: other. What would happen if one without sin took all sin upon himself? <laughs> he would die once for all. What's declared about Jesus? The one in whom was no sin yet tempted in every way. A brother, just like us. And yet, was not in this condition. He had truly free will. And with that free will, he chose obedience, even death on a cross. He chose to take our sin upon himself. We read about 2 Peter chapter 2. 25, I think it's verse 25. Might be 23. Um, and that, that's the difference. So we, we understand that man, apart from the Son of God, Jesus, I would argue is in this state. It is not possible to not sin. And I think the argument that it is possible not to sin, which is an old argument, by the way. So what I'm giving you about not possible not to sin and the various states... Um, was argued by uh, Augustine or Augustine however you want to pronounce his name and there was a a particular uh, guy by the name of Pelagius who was arguing against total depravity and the the impact of original sin and this is Pelagius' argument man didn't really lose his free will his ability not to sin in fact if, if a man could walk perfectly he could be like Jesus well, the Bible
1: tells you to be holy as
0: I am correct, there is a command there is a decree but there is permissiveness within that decree, so we would call that um, preceptive will the preceptive will of God is that we be holy as he is holy well, the right? is that's the command <laughs> certain people agree he gave, Pardon? He, he gave that command to
1: the Israelites, didn't
0: he? Oh, he yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> he, gave that, he, gave that
1: command,
0: he gave that oh. command here yeah. in yeah. the yeah. garden. Mm-hmm. Well, that, was he, uh, that was the condition, if you will, of communion. Right. That you present yourself in a way that God can actually commune with you. And it's for freedom that he came so that we don't have to. We're not slaves to do that depravity, so we can choose not to. It is for freedom that Christ set you free, right? Mm-hmm. So we understand that there's something that happens. So one would say you're in a place of total depravity, and the only way that you can actually regain communion, and I'm going to dismiss. Oh, where did the eraser go? Right there, probably. Okay, yeah, lower. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out Pelagius's argument. I think it's, I think it's a Pelagius Pelagius. So, um, yeah. so some would say the only way that you can get out of this condition is if God reaches down, grabs you, and pulls you up. Right? All God. So you are totally unable. In fact, you are totally uninterested. You are so busy going to hell that you can see no other reality. That's the state of the world today. And apart from God doing something, Him desiring to act on your behalf, and then actively working on your behalf, you would call that effective grace, efficacious grace. Because this is gracious. And it's effective. Right? Without that, you are totally lost and going to hell. There is no other option. The grace is a verb. Right? There are others that would say God is concerned about your free will. Because. When he comes down and he grabs you, he might grab you, kicking and screaming. Right? It's like, no, I don't want to go. I'm having fun here. Leave me alone. Talk to the hand. Right? And my will is not God's will, and yet God gave me free will. So in my free will, if he overrides my free will, I don't really have free will. That would be the argument. That with efficacious grace, um, my free will is diminished at best, or it doesn't exist, and we have all sorts of arguments about how we can have um, some aspect of will, even though we have none. Now, when I chose Karen... <laughs> um, and I wanted Karen in, in the ultimate state, to be had, right? I want a communion. Right? Um, if I came in, grabbed her, and she says, "No, babe, you'll make a fine husband for somebody someday, just not me." Right? And I said, "Too bad, woman. You're coming with me when we get here. How do you think?" that love relationship would be. Know, it wouldn't be what we would think of as if I said, you know, Karen, I love you. I love you. I love you so much that I'm going to not violate your free will, but I'm going to make a way for you to hear me Say I love you. I'm going to restore the aspect of your free will such that you can hear my voice. Such that you can actually experience my grace. Not seeking grace because you're still in a place of, of depravity. Maybe not total depravity. But you're in a place of depravity. And I would say the place of total depravity when that That wooing of God comes. They would call that prevenient grace. Prevenient grace, prevenient means comes before. It is the grace which comes before that makes it possible for you um, to receive the full grace of God. To go from a place where it is, like where you're at here it's not possible not to sin you're still in a place of not possible not to sin in other words if this is as far as you go if you receive that grace which comes before that allows you to hear and to see and to know that there is a God and that he is different than the world he's not what you hear on Bill Mars primetime or whatever the show was I can't remember Um, But rather, he is one who cares so much for you that he would die for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? So you hear. If you do not respond in free will, you remain in depravity and you're going to hell. But if in that place you respond in free will, you have no ability actually work yourself to God however God can through an effective grace make intercession for you and make it possible for you to not sin in sanctification and ultimately make it not possible for you to sin four states that I'm talking about Possible to sin, possible not to sin. Not possible not to sin. And when you make a decision and you're on the uh, on the grace and mercy route that God provides, it is now possible not to sin. In other words, you have a choice when you wake up as a Christian whether you want to... Um, sin that day or not sin that day. And I have no idea what sin looks like for you. I know what it looks like for me.
1: Right?
0: Um, and we call that a struggle with the flesh. Paul writes about it in chapter 7 of Romans. I call it the doo-doo chapter. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, um, what I ought to do, and I find myself standing here to a pile of dew, what do I do? Right? And so that's the struggle once we've chosen to answer the call, it is possible not to sin, and it convicts us. The Holy Spirit is there convicting us at every turn when we choose to sin. And he is encouraging us at every turn not to sin. And ultimately, when we are glorified, when we are with Christ in Christ, In his presence, it will be not possible to sin. In other words, he's going to remove sin completely (coughs) completely from the game. Those are the four states.
1: Daniel? So, someone who's not a believer um, that's doing some kind of sin, um, you don't think that they're convicted by something? You know, like they know what they're doing wrong, like say if they're um, stealing or... Yelling at their, cussing at their parents or something—they got to know, like. That they're...
0: And we read about that in Romans chapter two. Even those without the law, have their conscience bearing witness to the law.
1: Isn't that part of the prevenient grace? Is that I God believe, is allowing people to? I believe that is
0: part of prevenient grace, and I would use that part of Scripture to argue for this this model as opposed to this model here. So this model here—that you wouldn't feel guilty at all if you sinned in total depravity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Calvinism. <laughs> this model right here, called Wesleyanism. I'm—I'm n- oh, not going so to say. It's right. made about four point one, and ism. something like that. I don't know if that's an e or but. So the idea is is that it's really an argument about free will. And it's really an argument about um, the nature of God's choosing. Um, So in this case what we hear is that God chooses all in a sense but he knows that some are not going to respond. And so in this place Um, there is no uh, effective grace. So if we were to look at this model over here, we have total depravity, unlimited, uh, unconditional election, which means that you have no no part in that. It's all God's. Limited atonement, which means that Um, that atonement is applied not to broadly all humanity but to those who are the elect. Um, Irresistible calling, which is that you're coming whether you want to or not. And then perseverance of the saints, that the evidence that this is true is that in the end, you persevered. So that's the, the, um, in a very general way, and not necessarily everything that Calvin believed, um, that would be this representation of that theological understanding, right? And I will say that this is a very Baptist, conservative Baptist understanding is Calvinism, and that it's all God and only God, and that we are only by his grace um, saved. And I would argue that this, the the language that I just said uh, in Wesley's understanding would be true as well. I'm not going to talk about the Pelagius and Arminian position because I don't believe that it has much merit. Um, but in this position, I think that that's true as well. But you also see what we call the desiderative will of God. God, that which God desires. He desires of none would be lost. It still requires God to do everything.
1: Yeah.
0: But in a, in a sense... You're not responsible. This would be the argument. I'm not responsible if I go to hell and God did not choose me and effectively pull me up. I was created for destruction and I have no choice in that. So therefore I'm not responsible for it. Whereas in this view, it says, no, 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 no. That God doesn't desire that any would be lost. But that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of him. And that there is some... Amount of grace that comes before to allow someone to respond to that call. Whether they choose to or not, the responsibility for, for where they end up, the responsibility for their choice, is theirs. Now, Calvinists can argue that the responsibility for choice is, is ours also, and that because of the particular way that God has purposed the universe. That's just the way it is. Um, Wesleyanism has a little bit, a little bit more wiggle room in the middle. Now I don't think God has wiggle room, but you know, nonetheless, that would be the position. Okay. Then there are those that would say, "Well, yeah, sure enough, you're totally depraved, and you can answer to God at any point in time, but you can also reject Him at any point in time." And, oh, you might answer a little bit more effectively. You know, you had one of those camp conversion things. And then all of a sudden you go back to smoking and drinking and rock and roll. And then, you know, at the end, you repent and there you are. You know. so, so there are those, you don't know where you are with God at any point in time. Because your choosing Him is based upon your power to hold on to that choice. It's based on your ability. And Calvinism says, no, it's not based on your ability, it's based on God his covenant and who he is in dealing with humanity. So you don't have to worry about the fact that you are unable because God's got you covered. He's got your back. I'll get to you here in just a second. And so what I would say about Calvinism is it was responding to a particular (coughs) problem early on in the Reformation era, which had to do with assurance of salvation. I'm not going to get into it today. But I'm going to say that one of the reasons why you have this particular theological framework and the scripture to support it, and the scriptures there to support it, um, is because they were addressing a certain problem. And that the reason you have this position and the scripture that's there to support it, and there is scripture to support it, is because it's solving a different problem. It's not solving a problem of assurance of salvation and ability. Rather it's solving a problem of the extent of your free will and the ability for you to love God. As I read in that psalm, I love the Lord. That's how Psalm 116 starts. So the question would be like Pharaoh.
1: Was it God using his free will that, that he knew that he wasn't and So he said, well, I will use that...
0: For the Israelites to show power, or did he not choose them and Yes. So now it's time to start examining. Now that I've kind of thrown this out <laughs> in the various positions and where people will come from and say, look at scripture, now let's take a look at one of them the situation of Pharaoh. What about Pharaoh? Let's see if I can get this guy on. on. There we go. Um, let's take a look at. At. So it's talking about decree, and we're working towards election. And it's coming up. So this is kind of where we started last week. So we want to understand um, that that word decree or foreordained. Um, what are the uh, what's the definition of it? What are the characteristics of it? Um the understanding efficacious versus perceptive elements of it, having to do with purpose, having to do with desire. Um, and then we want to understand sovereignty and freedom, and what that means in, uh, in these different models. And this is all about decree. And then we end up with a discussion of what about Pharaoh? Because that's the classic example where Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart right so we see that there is both happening and that's where we're going to end up how can both happen right and what does that mean when we hear that Pharaoh hardened his heart well God created him thus right would be one argument Um, as opposed to uh, Pharaoh just continually strong arming God until the point where God says okay that's what you want guess what this is what you get that's what we read about in Romans chapter 1 as an example, right? And so we're gonna. that's where we're going to end up. Then we're going to talk about election. That's just so that we can get to verse 4 in Ephesians, <laughs> right? Um, so let's take a look here at uh, understanding uh, decree. And here you have Ephesians 1.11. Um, you actually see this word. Um, also, we have obtained an inheritance. So that obtaining an inheritance is—that means that we are, um, as a result of adoption, we now have a future, right? So apart from being in God's kingdom, apart from being a child of God, your your future is in hell. Um, but now we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose that word predestined is decreed having been decreed according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will so we want to understand God's will that's why the very first day I passed out that thing on the different aspects of will Uh, decorative will that which is decreed Uh, desiderative will that which is desired Uh, preceptive will that which is commanded permissive will that which is allowed but may not be desired um, so if you're missing that that uh, handout's up here at the front you can grab that but we need to understand something about uh, god's will and we also need to understand something about his purpose why is god doing okay. that? what's the end it's to the praise of his glory right and so we need to understand what does that mean—the praise of His glory. It's like lots of words we're going to unpack here. But let's just start with um, some key biblical teaching on, and, and I'm going to take a look and focus on Ephesians 1.11, But there are other verses that you can uh, take a look at as well. For example, if we go to Isaiah fourteen, much oh, time we here. Isaiah fourteen, where we read. It says the Lord of Hosts has sworn, saying, "Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand." That's decree. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample on him, uh, trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against, uh, devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand. That is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? Right. That's a pretty strong statement, understanding that which God has decreed. Just like in in verse 11 of Ephesians, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So, seeing those different positions that I just laid out on the board, uh, what I'd say consistent Calvinism was the leftmost position. God causes all things to happen. He is ultimately the cause of everything. Nothing happens apart from God's purpose and without his approval. This world, as it actually happens, glorifies God maximally. Meticulous providence, script theory, those, so when we talk about providence... I'll, talk, I'll explain meticulous providence and the idea of scripture. A more uh, centrist position, which was what I drew in the middle there, a Wesleyan position, and you can be, uh, have a predominantly Calvinistic perspective and understanding of God and his work in our lives, this election, this calling, um, this grace that extends to us, and still be more towards the center, understanding uh, the purpose of God and the importance of uh, our will. So God is at work in all things, but does not cause all things. In other words, when I sin, that is my choice. It is not God causing me to sin. There are decisions he does not make or approve, though they do not frustrate his plan. In other words, he's going to accomplish that which he wants to accomplish. And I would take you to um, one of my favorite verses, and it's going to become a password someday. Mm -hmm. Genesis chapter uh, 50. You read about Joseph's brothers coming to him after their father has died, and they're worried because they threw Joseph in the pit. They tried to kill him. And they're worried that he's going to change his mind. That he's going to not show them grace, but he's going to come back and smush him out, and and he was just waiting for his dad to die, right? So they come in with their plan, and and it it actually really grieves Joseph's heart when he hears this, and he he says in verse 19, he says, Joseph said to them, his brothers, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So God has a plan which cannot be thwarted. It cannot be shipwrecked because of my decision. I can truly make a choice, but it does not affect God's ability um, to accomplish that which he desires, just like it said in Isaiah. So that would be a more moderate, uh, centralist position and in, in some views would mean that I have, in a, a sense, a greater responsibility for my action. I can't blame God. Like, I got stuck in Dallas because of an act of God. No. I got stuck in Dallas because I got on an airplane and, and went to Dallas. And it just so happened that there was a storm coming in, right? Um, I can't blame my choices on God. Um, but nonetheless, it does not frustrate that his plan. An Armenian position, that which was to the far right, was up and down, up and down, up and down. Who knows? Let's roll the dice and hope that we end up well. Um, God, well obviously you can see my bias here. Sorry about that. Um, God is working everywhere in this world but doesn't interfere in free choices. He knows what's going to happen but doesn't force things. Free will providence, free will theory. I'll talk more about that. Um, so In that sense, it does not speak to his plan. It does not speak to the purpose of God and how it cannot be frustrated. And that's a a problem. In fact, it it goes into what we would call openness theology. God is dynamically developing and adapting. In other words, when you make a choice, God doesn't know what it's going to be. And because he is the infinitely intelligent chess player, he will adapt to whatever move you make to make sure that he wins in the end. Right? That would be openness theology. That what's going to happen, God does not know. And I think that diminishes who God is. That you can surprise God. That you can surprise God that God would be surprised, like, oh, I didn't expect you to make it. <laughs> <laughs> under, openness, under openness theology, when I walk into heaven, that's what God would say. It's like, <laughs> well, <there might laughs> Who be would have thought that? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and I also don't think that it's just that God is working everywhere, and my free choices um, can affect the outcome. I think that Um, what God says will happen, will happen. And that's very encouraging. Mm -hmm. That's why when I read Psalm 116, and it says, I cried out to God, and He (coughs) saved me, based on His promise and His person, not based on my ability. That's very comforting to me. And I understand that. Uh, I also understand the wooing of God. That's unfortunately we're out of time. But um, we're going to take a look, and both of the, what I would say the uh, positions that I'm going to present as having merit, the meritorious positions, uh, A and B, um, agree on this definition of decree. It's God's eternal purpose based on his most wise and holy counsel, whereby he freely and unchangeably, for his own glory, ordain either efficaciously or permissively all that comes to pass and we're going to take a look at a lot of scripture to support that and we're going to come back to how does that affect choice so let's go ahead and, and close here in prayer and I'm sorry if we didn't make it further um, but I think you need to lay a good foundation because in the end we got to stand firm when when all is said and done we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places and the heavenlies therefore take the full armor of god that you'll be able to stand fast in the evil day and having or you'll be able to stand in the evil day having done all stand fast that's what's going to happen everybody in this room I don't know what that stand will be but what I want you to know is we're building on a good foundation a foundation where you'll be able to look to the right to the left and you'll see the gleaming helmets of salvation of your fellows around you as we stand in this world and meet our coming Lord so let's go ahead and close in prayer Lord we just thank you for opportunity to come to your word Uh, we thank you that you bring up lots of questions as we go through this And I know many in here are are wrestling with uh, the idea of freedom and the effectiveness of your will and how we can trust in you and not um, our own strength, that we are saved by your grace and your grace alone. Um, And yet, Lord, also struggle with uh, the why do I sin? And what does that mean, um, aspect, Lord, of your command to be holy as you're holy? Lord, um, these are. This is the wrestling ground today, and these are the things where people take shots at us in the world. And we want to have a good answer. We want to always be able to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you would uh, be with the message this morning. That your uh, spirit would powerfully go out. That it would affect um, all that are present. Um, that our hearts would be tender and open, and our ears would be open to hear you this morning, Lord. Um, We thank you for this. We ask for your provision and your protection as we make our way in this evil world, Lord, that you would uh, keep us uh, sanctified and and in that sense separated, even though we are not separate apart from the world, but together with in a way that we can inform and be ambassadors for you, who you are into the world. Mm -hmm. Lord, um, we just ask that you provide for us, you protect us. We're so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you loved us so much that you would lay down everything us that you would die a death on a cross that we might live together forever with you Lord Jesus and we thank you for this in your name Lord Jesus we pray Amen Amen.